next installment of the SUAS News Podcast Series, where we discuss the news and issues relevant to the global unmanned technologies community. I'm your program host, Patrick Egan. Let's say a hello and a warm welcome to our co-host, Gene Robinson. Hello out there, Patrick. How are you, sir? I'm doing good. Another beautiful sunny day in California. And uh, I'm trusting everything's good down there in the Texas way. Well, we're finally breaking the drought a little bit, so we're all happy down here getting a little rain. So if I fall off, you know why. It's uh, cell phone science. All right. We also have uh, Marcus Men. Hello, our, Patrick. Hey, Marcus. He's our uh, Technology Training Corp rep. And we're going to get an update from him, but I want to uh, I want to start uh, right away. We we have uh, this show is uh, episode thirty nine. Accountability makes change, and we have our guest uh, for this. We'll bring him on in a little bit. It's going to be pretty good. We got a lot of stuff to talk about, but I do want to start as we always do with the news and current events. And I'm going to, um, you know, I, I don't know if I well I think you saw the pop size story, Gene. Featuring I the, did. The, the Cracker Barrel is in fine fiddle there, isn't it, uh, Patrick? You're keeping that one warmed up and ready to go, aren't you? Well, that's to be honest, that's an old picture, but uh, I I got to break it back out. And, and uh, I was thinking about that. You know, you could we could do glamour shots or with a Cracker Barrel, you know. But uh, it's uh, it's it needs some work. <laughs> but that's an old picture. But anyway, it was a good uh, it was a good thing, and uh, the. Uh, Reporter with that one was, uh, we'll get into that a little bit later, but it was a good story. It wasn't exactly what I said, but we had a very long conversation, and I was able to glean a lot of, uh, let's say, information from her on what the layperson thinks of this technology. Um, There was also, I don't know if you caught, it just came out, this month's uh, National Geographic, and the cover is because they sent it to me. Is America strikes oil, and it's about fracking. But uh, there's an article in there uh, with, called "The Drones Come Home," and I was one of the fact checkers on that. Did you see that article? Yeah, you know, and uh, we've had a, a little brush with Nat, Nat Geo ourselves, and uh, of course we can't talk about that mission. But yeah, it's uh, you know they they're trying to keep up with it, and I'm glad they they managed to get a hold of somebody who knew some of the things that were going on out here, and, and uh, they did do those fact-checking. So that was a good one. I, I hope it uh, grows legs and, and runs a lot. Well, and the funny thing is, is you know, I think I think we're, uh, we probably have um, a worse reputation than the frackers. You know, we're probably running neck and neck on that one. Um, all right. Well, you know, I know, uh, as always, there were a few stories that must have caught your attention. Um, would you like to discuss those? Well, you know, one thing that I'd like to make a statement about, Patrick, is that the news has picked up on the drones, and I hate that word, but the news has picked up on unmanned aircraft, and they're really starting to carry this more as a sensational story rather than the things that it could be. We've, we've seen everything from uh, UAs flown in Antarctica to the, the big deal with General Atomics getting a, a contract from UAE for predators, and, you know, it, it's just growing, and it's getting bigger and bigger. There seems to be no shortage of stories or things to talk about when it comes to unmanned aircraft because it is the topic of the day. Well, so and I, I think we're going to see more of it. 
And when, you know, I got to be honest, uh, you know, when you, depending upon how you list these things, I mean, it's the same deal with the podcast. There's tons of listens off of YouTube, or I'm not, sorry, iTunes and other places because people are searching, uh, they're searching for um, these drone stories. It's very hot right now. Uh, but we we have a, a bad image, and the reason we have a bad image well, we could kind of go into that too, but it is sensational right now. People want to know about it. I've been watching all kinds of people are doing documentaries. They're talking about you know what these drones are going to do, yada yada yada. Popular misconceptions, but uh, I agree. But did you see any uh, any new news stories that caught your attention, or was it more uh, rehashed stuff like the Antarctica story you just kind of mentioned? Go ahead with that one. The Antarctica story is interesting in that uh, they did go down and they showed what harsh environments we can operate unmanned aircraft in. I think that was probably the most important thing, uh, that the unmanned aircraft preceded the, the ground crews that went in. They've uh, flown in some pretty, really nasty environments. Of course, it's cold, as one might expect. So you'd have to think that uh, a LiPo battery is going to be pretty cold and motors and electronics and everything else. So I, I think that is an important notch for us to, to show capability. Uh, and, and that's just, you know, the, one of the, the kind of upbeat stories that we've seen so far. You and I discussed uh, this, this past week the, uh, the FAA's new RFIs, the request for information for people trying to get the new test centers. Uh, you know, that's kind of the – we've been waiting for this. We've, we've kind of seen things talked about. And, and that's finally starting to, to get out. They're making their own press releases and things like that. So something must be about to happen. And, uh, you know, here's hoping that it's good. Right. Well, that's kind of a moving into the first segment. We'll get into that a little bit more. But those are some good news stories. They're all over the place. Everybody, I mean, everybody's running that story. And, and I think that rides uh, or goes points right back to what you were talking about, the sensationalism. I mean, every news outlet, oh, here you go, you know, the FAA, drones, be there. Um, but we'll get into that in a second. Uh, Marcus, uh, you're part of the news here, too, because I wanted to have you on this morning. I'm going to be uh, speaking at UAS West here in uh beautiful sunny san diego and i wanted to get an update from you who's who's locked in um you know kind of lay the land on that deal if you could real quick there sir all right real quickly uh we're still looking really good march 12th through the 14th and like you said san diego california uh we're starting off with one of our biggest speakers dr alton uh, ramig jr vice president and general manager for the advanced development programs for Skunk Works at Lockheed Martin, and he'll be presenting on next generation unmanned aircraft systems. A look ahead. Uh, we have other, some other great ones. Ron Stern, director of research at G2 Solutions, he'll be talking about the unmanned aircraft systems market forecast, which a lot of people are going to have heavy interest. Brigadier General uh, Louis Edwards, United States Air Force, will be presenting on U.S. CENTCOM perspectives on UASs. Brigadier General Ken Tordoff, United States Air Force. U.S. Northcom's perspective on unmanned aircraft systems. Colonel Dana Hessenheimer, United States Air Force, National Guard Predator, RPA program update. Notice I said RPA, not drone, Gene. Lieutenant Colonel Jeff Becker, United States Army. And he's going to have a big one on the United, the United States Army's UAS operations update, a warfighter's perspective on needs, challenges, and lessons learned. And these are confirmed 
military and government guys that will be there. And it also helps in attendance. We got, you know, for example, Lisa Fisher from the Government Accountability Office. Her and three of her other colleagues will be there looking for networking and uh, opportunities, and they'll be bringing those to the table. You have the Air Force's A3 Squadron, the Army's 82nd, uh, Army's G8. We have, um, you know, the U.S. Naval Postgraduate School. Naval Special Warfare Command is going to be there. Navy PEO C4I is going to be there. Northrop Grumman, you know. Cisco, Boeing, I mean, we have Raytheon, the Solipsis, the Zeus program guys are going to be there. These are the people that are going to be there in attendance as well as participating in presenting. So, I mean, we have them confirmed they're going to be there. It's going to be a great, great opportunity for people to come out and learn more, you know, for people who have solutions to possible problems to be able to present them. And once again, it's March 12th to the 14th in San Diego, California. You can find more at uh, UAS.com. Uh, uswest.com. Hey, let me ask you another question. I mean, it sounds pretty military-centric, but I mean, I'm going to be there, and I'm going to be talking about uh, commercial or small business use. And there, I know this. There's a couple of other people, uh, and I've been getting calls from people who want to get into the commercial side of this. Are you just maybe you could give us a little insight uh, from like a sales perspective, Marcus? Is are those people calling? Are they inquiring? Are they trying to get in here? Is it just uh, a, a cost versus sales because there's there's not a lot of uh, commercial opportunity. You got any insight on that? I think, and, and personally, I think the commercial is going to be the future. I right. think, and that's what I believe. You and I have conversed on that uh, privately on the side. Um, we do have a, a decent amount of commercial opportunities or uh, people that come up present. We have uh, a Robert Fulton from uh, Turbine Biofuels who'll be coming out, and he, he he's going to be presenting and exhibiting out there and talking about the alternative fuels for both military government UAVs as well as those for the commercial aspect. Talk about cost efficiency and savings and and the opportunities out there. Hmm. Well, I just think it's interesting. I mean, I have been talking to more people, like I said, and definitely, uh, you know, commercial ventures and money's coming online for uh, the small business use. But uh, we'll have to keep our uh, keep our eyes peeled on that one. And thanks for the insight on that. Um, I'm looking forward to being there. I'm going to do that, and we're going to do a live podcast, and we're also going to, I think we're going to uh, have a contest where we're going to raffle off a copy of Gene's book, a signed copy of of Gene's book, First to Deploy. So it'll be a little, uh, you know, raffle action going there. All right, well, I want to move into the first segment. And uh, I know, you know, Marcus, you got to drop off after, but I wanted to get your take on this one, too. But I'm going to ask Gene first. We've got the test site announcement. It's everywhere. Uh, It kind of coincides, and I'd been told, you know, that the EFF had a lawsuit about privacy, and it's over. They had to sue, basically, to get the COA information that I had originally requested back in 2009, um, you know, and I've even mentioned to the FAA that if they would have came up with that information back in 2009, I think this privacy thing would be really uh, less of an issue today because they could have pointed back and said, oh, hey, well, we already here's all that information. It's right here. Who's this is what people are doing and this is uh, who's doing it. You know, have a nice day. Um Gene, do you think it is coincidental that we're seeing some action now, even though it's like a better late than never thing? Do you think that uh, the spotlight's on the FAA and they have no choice? they got to make a move. Insight, please. 
Well, let's face it, the, the momentum has uh, gained significantly in the, in the past year. And uh, obviously the pressure is on the FAA since the passage of, the, of, of House Bill 658. And they're going to have to do something. They're going to have to work hard at it. And uh, as we've heard so many times before, they're understaffed. They're, they're worked overtime, and they're trying to get a lot done with uh, just a few few people working it. Uh, so, yeah, there's going to be uh, a lot more pressure on them. And, unfortunately, a lawsuit, it had to take a lawsuit to get that sort of thing going when really the, the, the FOIA, the Freedom of Information Act, should be something that uh, should be easily filled. Understand that they have to, to worry about national security and that sort of thing. But uh, for a, a summary of what COAs have been issued, I, I just, you know, that was kind of beyond me. But uh, you're right. It, it's, uh, yeah, it is coincidental kind of, but, uh, you know, it's been a long time in the making. Well, and even when I made that somebody somebody's secretary is going nuts. She's not much of a looker, but she's very, very loyal. Anyway, the... Uh, I had, uh, during that request, I had asked that, um, you know, or it's stated that any national security stuff could be excluded, I understood. But anyway, I mean, it, you know, we're talking four years here. Uh, it's not really plausible. Um, but anyway, I, I don't want to get too far off on that yet, and we'll talk a little bit more about that. But Marcus, do you have any insight on that you'd like to talk about? Well, I mean, as far as the testing uh, is concerned, I mean, it, I, I heard this morning, I, I don't know if it's a fact or a rumor or whatnot, but. Uh, something the uh, the government, Congress, FAA, something of a potential nine billion dollars in sales out there for this uh, FAA testing center and services, and it's just an incredible amount. I don't know if that's a real number. Right? Like I said, I don't know if it's a rumor or whatnot, but uh, it's number. it's it's out there. Well. I mean, there's a lot of potential. I mean, that was the, you know, it's kind of funny is uh, I deal with my congressperson's office a lot. And uh, one of the aides, you know, rang me up about six months ago. Oh, what's it worse? You know, and I'm like, well, I don't, you know, I don't know. I mean, we could pull telephone numbers out of the sky, but people are thinking it's going to be worse, you know, billions of dollars and uh, there'll be lots of action. Uh, You know, I go back and forth on that. Because I've been involved in some of these uh, uh, test center proposals. Again, you know, when you, <clears throat> from what I was thinking, and I mean, there's a lot of chyster consultants out there, but from what I'm thinking, it's like, okay, well, let's think of the overhead. What, what are you trying to capture is the question that I asked. What, what do you want to have come out here and fly? Oh, well, <laughs> we want everything all the way on up to Global Hawks. Okay. I cannot come to a test center and support the overhead to fly a Global Hawk. I just can't. I'm sorry. I, I just don't have that kind of bread. So, you know, um, is small business going to benefit from this? I don't know. It's very, very uh, hard for people to support that type of overhead. Um, but w- we'll see. I agree. Um I mean, there's a lot of different groups like you and I have talked about before that are out there. There's Gene dropped me a thing saying, you know, there's three possible places that most likely they'll pick. But there's one group that I wanted to mention really fast that I believe does have the capabilities and would probably be one of the top places to be. Would probably be uh, the ISR group out in Savannah, Tennessee. Um, they have both. The t- training and testing facilities, they have their own uh, airfield out there. They have their own airspace that they could fly and test out there. You know, they're probably one of the best ones out there that's 
you know, deserves to be mentioned in all these big names that are out there. Um, you know, if you want to know more about them, you know, Dallas Brooks is the VP of Government Relations, and, and Jim Tully, he's the vice president of BD over there at the ISR Group. That's a place that needs to be mentioned, and uh, I think people need to know more about that. Yeah, well, are they working with the uh, what is the the college out there? Uh, Kyle Snyder was out there for a while. That's what is it? I want to like South Tennessee State or Central Tennessee State. I don't know off the top of my hand. But do you know if they're working with them? Actually, I don't know on top of my head either. I can definitely find out for you and bring that up on another uh, podcast for sure. All right, yeah, you caught me off guard on that one. But we'll, you know, yeah, we'll have to discuss that more in the future. I don't know, uh, you know, me and Gene have gone back and forth on that and where do we think these test centers will be. And I got to be honest, and I I know Gene kind of concurs, but I don't want to speak for Gene, that more than likely these sites are going to be around big vendors uh, and or districts that the uh, Unmanned Vehicle Caucus uh, uh, group might have. That's my my take. And then also, somebody let the cat out of the bag that uh, Oklahoma's in the top ten. So there you go. You know, you got your your race uh, your race papers going there. Gene, did you have anything else to? <laughs> when, when you consider that uh, the Department of Homeland Security is now running their their RPAS program, their test program at Fort Sill in Oklahoma. You know, it doesn't, you know, it's not rocket surgery to figure out what's going on with with some of the the higher-level government agencies. They intend to be out there from this past November, went through the summer for potentially a year, testing up to 85 different types of RPAs. So that kind of gives you an indication that uh, somebody's in the running for something out there or they wouldn't be doing what they're doing. I mean, that's just kind of a simple matter of logic to me. What do you think? Uh, I would concur with that. And I think the other thing I'm not seeing here is some clear-cut criteria for applications, okay? And I'm going to believe that this is another instance where the FAA is going to crank up the ranker machine. Uh, People are going to come back. When they pick these sites, man, I think there's going to be some uh, heavy-duty fallout. From, uh, you know, well, what about us? And this wasn't fair. And what's the criteria? And again, I think uh, even with the proposals and how the FAA failed to lay out this criteria, they've wasted a lot of time and money for for municipalities that could probably use that money for, oh, I don't know, public safety, schools, whatever. There was nothing clear cut that said like, hey, if you're in the shadow of uh, Class B airspace, I doubt we're going to let you fly Global Hawks in there or, you know, Predators or some other aircraft that weighs 500 pounds on the approach to, you know, uh, Chicago's uh, O'Hare Airport. That's not going to happen. Could have probably, you know, saved some folks some money, some time, some effort. Um, We're not going to let you fly in, you know, on the approach there at um, LAX. You know, things like that. I think that uh, that would have probably been uh, helpful for people. But uh, whatever. You know, I don't work over there. I don't have to answer the phone. I don't have to have people yelling at me. I mean, they do anyway, but I don't have to really pay attention. I can always hang up. So that's not my job. (laughs) But anyway, uh, you know, that's what's going to happen there. Um, You know, so whatever. I don't really care. Anyway, the one thing I wanted to talk about, and we're going to bring on the guest because we're running kind of long here, but flashing back to the Pop Psy article, okay? 
The reporter commented how our industry, and I kind of made a joke about the fracking deal, our industry's image has reached uh, kind of a, a, a cataclysmic level, which I have to agree. I mean, every time you look, oh, the drone thing, and people are going to, we're going to do this, and the privacy thing, I think it's a red herring. I just think people are totally scared, and I want this militarized stuff here. Yet, even had at the uh, AUVSI program review, Jim Williams, oh, they're not going to arm drones in the, in the airspace in, uh, over the United States, and then, you know, was asked about Homeland, or not, uh, Homeland Security or the Border Patrol, and if they wanted to arm them, it says, well, we have no control over them. So he kind of contradicted himself. I think people are scared. Uh, they're not interested. I keep saying that. They're not interested in the Taliban treatment. And until it all gets worked out, I think they're just like, whoa, whoa, we don't want that. I've talked about it for the past seven or eight years. Some people have got me written off as some sort of visionary thing or or that I'm Monday morning quarterbacking. Uh, Gene, you, you know me for a long time. you buying any of that, or, or, or do you think that's just some kind of common-sense view of the situation? What do you think? Well, I think the American public is waking up now and, and seeing just exactly what could occur. Um, CNN, of course, helped us out significantly when they, you know, brought the war to our doorstep, and we are now seeing images from the predators and the, the global hawks. And, you know, the, the folks in America are, are looking at that going, well, you know, and they're talking about flying that over my head. And, uh, yeah, Patrick, I mean, we've, we've talked about this since uh, 2005 and talked about the privacy issue and everything else. And it's common sense. It's just common sense. And, and it's not that we're trying to be sensational or anything like that. It's just the facts. And well, uh, unfortunately, sometimes the facts count people more than fiction. Well, and I mean, you know, look at the vernacular. I watched another documentary. I mean, besides Rise of the Drones, which was like, ooh, ooh, gave me the creeps, and I'm a proponent. But, you know, watch this other documentary, and here's some of the, um, here's some of the verbiage. Drone porn. Now, I don't know if anybody on the call here knew about drone porn, but, you know, the the videos of the uh, hellfire strikes, I guess there's a whole uh, underground thing where that's people are watching that and they enjoy that and talk about it. Uh, people that, that uh, make and distribute drones are called drone dealers, which to me kind of sounds like a, a drug dealer or an arms dealer or something else. Um, and we also have... Um, We've got, you know, Dronescape, and we've got Drone Valley now. There's actually a Drone Valley where all this evilness comes from. Patrick? Yes. Joel, can we comment? You can comment. Well, let me just introduce you first, though, before you comment on that. Uh, we're moving into segment two, uh, and we're going to bring on our guest, Mr. Joel Coulter. Uh, Joel, say hello. Hello, Patrick. Thanks for introducing me to this wonderful podcast. Okay, well, you know, people don't, may not know who you are. Um, you know, you're the vice president of the D.C. chapter of AUBSI. Could you please give us a little bio on how you got here before we, we launch in? Right. Well, back in 2003 and 2004, after 9-11, I got pulled into the military experimentation campaigns for wearable technologies, ISR. And at the time, I was advising a company called Zybernaut, which was the leading wearable, because I was – Back in the day, I worked with mission critical tactical training systems for the military in the 90s, and I just saw platforms as another way of giving me 
access to data I needed to make decisions and perform in mission-critical environments. So I set up a Homeland Security practice for Zybernaut, and uh, I, I had this thing always connected to your data. You jump out of a plane, helicopter, police car, and we create a police car and an ambulance, and we did disaster experimentations with Dr. Eric Frost, who became the head of the Homeland Security Institute at San Diego State University and did some really wonderful UAV things with Golden Phoenix and others with uh, University of Arizona and the AMOC in California. And so, yeah, I, I knew Eric long before we went out to San Diego. I, I miss him. I, I think he liked the weather. Um, but so about in 05, I got involved in the DOD's IPv6 transition for next-generation Internet and tried to bring the experimental framework in because transition is is a difficult thing because we have a lot of advanced technologies, but no one really knows what they can do, and then they write policy and they block technology because they really don't know what they're doing. And I went to a meeting at a home. Uh, the company, little company called EchoStorm, had won the Incubator of the Year Award down in Hampton Roads before there was any integrator down by Joint Forces Command. It was just a field right. of nothing. And EchoStorm was the first company to locate there. And I met David and Jason Barton, and Jason had just come back from George Lucas and running the back office of Star Wars Version 2. And because they were throwing all these UAVs over the Middle East at the time, and they had a video problem. They had all these video layers, and there was no common picture to go to the warfighter or from the warfighter to the NATO commanders. And I met four guy, five guys, and they, could, they couldn't show me because it was classified, but they could tell me. And it was called ISRIS. It was part of the MAGIC program for the Navy, and they got an ACTD for like several million to build the first uh, full-motion video ISR enterprise for multi-platform management. All right, well – and. I'm this is all interesting, but uh, you need to uh, kind of come yeah, so, up faster. So, so what I'm doing now, yeah. related to directly what you're doing, is Chris Anderson was just with uh, the long now. He was talking about DIY drones, do-it-yourself drones. And he was with my friend Christopher Zeloff on a podcast last night. Right, with Gary. Um, huh? I think with Gary Mortimer. Yeah, and so Chris and I are friends because I'm, I'm a very much fan of when he went to the – he was the keynote speaker, and he and I have been trying to do civilian and commercial UAS stuff for several years now. But the DOD sucks all the air out of it. When you, when you spend 70 80% of the money on UAVs, there's hardly any time for all the commercial guys and civilian guys to do anything because the DOD is spending all the money. I thought he was. Uh, I didn't watch the, the 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 video cast, and it is on the uh, unmanned operators page over at Google Plus. I haven't gotten a chance to watch that, but I thought he was totally uh, only amateur. I thought he was doing. I'm going to have to watch that. Well, uh, I got asked. I didn't see it last night either. I, I got asked to watch it, but yeah, you know, he creates a different paradigm with kids sharing UAV designs around the world because mm -hmm. that's a violation of our ITAR. <laughs> Right, but he's doing open source, and I thought he was just doing. Um, they were just doing a uh, basically open source and amateur stuff, which so is kind of their niche. But I don't know. I'll have to watch that. 
But it's pretty interesting where, you know, you have a long history in this, and that usually the the guests that we have on do have a very long history. And, I mean, you're going way back in the Wayback Machine. There's probably a lot of people going, hey, wait a minute. Because um, I found that in the last six months or a year, a lot of people have come in to join this conversation, and they don't realize uh, some of the milestones that we've already reached. But I wanted a flashback because you interjected. On some of the new, uh, let's say, catchphrases here, and you wanted to interject, and maybe you could you could revisit that real quick. Right. Well, you talk about accountability, and I, I I've designed test and evaluation environments, and I was frustrated. I met Gene a while back because he and David Yole had set up the COA down in Texas, which is very nice, 500 mile COA, and David Yole had been down at Fort Pickett, and I saw all these civilian agencies using a National Guard base, and I, I, I got very excited about the fact if I could make this affordable, can't we help small businesses who are the entrepreneurs and innovators in this industry, can't we help them get to environments where they can really show the art of the possible to not just DOD, but to civilian and commercial clients, law enforcement. And so obviously, I, I you know, Gene and I have been back and forth about this, and the thing we're doing at Fort Sill is just a, a the methodology is wrong. It's not going to help the vendors what they're doing. The focus yeah. is not on the vendor. The focus is on owning the data and the FAA and not in how do we globally lead. Oh, I would agree with with that. I don't think that the plan was that well thought out. Um, I think basically what what I had gleaned from it was that they were trying to, let's say, be part of the COA expedite, expedite thing where they would gather all the data like this this thing weighs, you know, uh, the whatever aircraft system X weighs four pounds. It's made of this. It flies like this. It uh, flies this fast. It has these capabilities. So you would have that COA drop-down menu which is even in my mind, you know, oh, okay, so we save about 10 minutes of filling out paperwork. Um, that That's what I'm getting out of the deal. Gene, what, what are you getting out of that deal? I know you've been closer to it. You applied for it. You've been hearing about it. Insight. Well, there's, there, there's something that's called the Saver Catalog, and uh, I was approached years ago on that particular process, and the Saver Catalog was designed to put together a list of equipment that was approved by, at the time, FEMA, which has now become the DHS, and that uh, municipalities and other agencies could uh, apply for federal funds to acquire. And uh, I think this is kind of an extension of that, and that uh, those those 85 selected uh, vendors uh, are going to go to Fort Sill, fly their aircraft, and they're going to do uh, uh, capability studies and do determinations of that, put it into this catalog, if you will, and then the municipality can choose from that. I don't know that the the COA situation is going to be that much of a help, as you said, because you're still going to have to go through the process of applying for the COA, regardless of, you know, whether the aircraft has been approved for use or not. It may save the FAA a little bit of time in that, okay, they have some sort of airworthiness that they can apply to it. But it still may not be the airworthiness certificate that you talk about. So I think it's just more of, uh, of the, the saver catalog concept. Mm. Uh, 
And it's still evolving. I think it's still evolving. Either that or they haven't made that that very clear as to where they're headed with this. Right. Hey, Patrick, this is Joel. There are two global uh, federal methodologies for bringing technology into the military spectrum. And one is called DISA, Defense Intelligence Systems Agency, that does one vendor a time. You pay $150,000, and that gets you on the uh, CIPRNET or, you know, gets you on the defense network. And DHS had an equipment list after 9-11 for buying police, fire, and rescue, buying all kinds of stuff. So when you ask, what kind of test and evaluation data and methodology did you use to get on that equipment list? I, I found their methodology very lacking. Mm-hmm. And I found one vendor at a time very lacking because the Coalition Warrior Interoperability Demonstration, a $10 million a year program at a Joint Chiefs of Staff, we did all kinds of multi-vendor interoperability test and evaluation. And I tried to give that data to DISA because I said, hey, you know, we're spending $10 million a year. You should, you, this should help the vendors get into certification for getting on the military network. We don't want that data. Mm-hmm. It's the same thing when I went to the FAA and said, I've got this great methodology the military has been using for, you know, ten thousands of hours assessing UAVs. Let's evolve their methodology of a 17-factor assessment that led to the sale of Buster for millions of dollars two weeks after the after the activity was performed, and FAA didn't want to touch the DOD. Well, you know, I think that there's a <clears> – <throat> I definitely think that the way the federal government deals with technology captures information and does these types of uh, studies is compartmentalized – and people yep. don't know how to manage them. And instead of delving into something that's going to be a bunch of work, uh, or they may not understand, they just shun it. And, you know, that that was another uh, thing I did want to talk about, too, with some of the popular misconceptions. And, I mean, you know, we are going back here. Okay, there's a couple of things. This, the, I don't know if people have noticed this, but we have a date for the MPRM for the SBAR, and it's uh, 6 of 13 uh, you know, that's going to go out there. We've got the, uh, the SFAR right now is in review at the DOT Office of Science and Technology. And there was a hearing where um, NASA testified to this committee and they were talking about some of these issues. And I want to talk about these issues real quick. One of them is sense and avoid separation, assurance, interoperability, communications, and human systems, in, uh, well, human systems integration is another point and support of UAS certification requirements. Now, everybody's going to probably say, hey, that all sounds good. We want to do that. Yep, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We've been talking about the same four issues for five, six, seven years or more. Yeah. And the thing with this is, is even some of this stuff was dealt with on the SUAS arc. Uh, when I was on the ARC, they had some engineers from NASA on. We had some of them on the show. Um, and what happened was is they did a lot of work on this and came up with ideas and tests and reports and concepts and things they wanted to do. Summarily dismissed. Not even read. Didn't even look at it. Just like the RCAPA proposed guidelines. Not even read. Nothing. Okay. So that's why I say, like, when I was petitioning for this new ARC to be a full uh, amended charter member, as this shows you the type of contempt, I would call it, that the FAA has 
for people that know what they're talking about. You got engineers yep. coming in here. Hey, this is how you do it. This is what you told me you want to do. This is how you do it. And they don't even want to deal with it. It's sad. We're, we're revisiting this. How much? Uh, how many years later? We're still grappling with the same problems. So, is, I mean, is that kind of also what you're talking about, Joel? Have you just kind of yeah, had the door slammed in your face? It's a culture of, you know, we have evolved to a culture. Thirty years ago, no integrator had product. They had services. They they were designed to go out, find innovation of solutions, put those solutions together. But now every large company has a suite of UAVs, sensors, cameras, and so they're vested in their product. They're not vested in a service. And so you're a small guy coming in with a small UAS and got some great ways to handle data, wireless connectivity, and, and they don't want to see you. They, don't want, they want to control the government because they don't want their programs of record to be modified to bring that innovation in because they're trying to develop their innovation because they want to sell a product. Right, and that goes that goes right back to some other misconceptions, where there's a popular misconception here in the United States that the DoD vendors uh, have this notion where they're trying to open the NAS for everyone, and people that espouse that, I got to tell you right off the bat, if that's what you're espousing, you are out of touch with reality because that is not what's happening here. I don't see that at all. No, they're gonna, they're gonna, they're gonna like anything else, like IPv6. They want to control the transition cycle, so they can buy up everything they need to maximize their revenue. Exactly, and that's what this game's all about. I think if people knew, if most people knew that you know most of the money or time that you spend involved in this uh, is basically what amounts to corporate welfare. You know, yeah, where where you're paying money and and doing things or getting involved, and basically what you're doing is sort is supporting the DoD vendor plan, the business plan. I don't think people knew that or know that, and I think they'd be very disappointed. But I wanted to flash back to accountability because that's that's kind of the the, the title of this uh, podcast, Joel. And you know, with the EFF, they had to come out, they had to sue. We got this big privacy issue now, but now it seems like the FAA. Has a little bit of accountability has been put to him, and now it's like, hey man, we got to do something. And we have seen that before. Me and Gene have seen that before. Anytime there's some pressure for accountability, you get action. They ask you to back off. We got these. We only have a few people here, and you back off, and then we just like go right back into the doldrums for four years. What do you think? Well, I've been asked to be on three different FAA RFPs already in the last three days. Our team, because of what we've been doing with the Fort Pickett National Guard Base, wireless upgrade, ISR Enterprise upgrade, it's all about connectivity to collaboration with all this sensor data and mass hit. So I know that it's, it's an opportunity. I think that since there's no money on this FAA RFP, so there's not going to be any money coming whoever wins, um, I think that the energy companies, we have to have an alternative strategy to say who who would pay to, you know, make it, make these centers sustainable and growing. And, and if we want to make sure that it's not just the, the traditional DOD large systems integrators who suck all the little innovations out and buy up the companies, and what we need to do is get a private sector involved of people who are going to buy UAV stuff. Like energy, 
Yeah, I, I think you're right, but I mean, you know, it kind of flashes back to what I was saying earlier: is can small business support the overhead to fly a global hawk? I mean, we're talking thirty-six thousand dollars an hour to fly that thing. Uh, you know, I mean, you, you two-hour flight, three-hour flight, and hey, you know, I'm I'm good with receipts for the years. A small business guy. So, I mean, I think what you're alluding to is exactly what we're saying. Who? can afford to pay and set these up who can afford the radar i'm looking for radar you know and anybody can contact me too because i'm looking for some uh surveillance radar myself and uh, i've been poking around and it ain't cheap you know uh we're talking tens of millions of dollars for radar systems i don't know small business guys that can uh to support that well there's some I work with the radar systems that the Navy deployed around the world and on the Port Maritime side called RMAC. And the TV white space, you know, the Navy works on 3.5 gigahertz for TV white space, which I got involved in because I think there's a shared spectrum strategy that's evolving out of the FCC that ties back into um, how do we support UAVs if we've got a baseline radar and alert system around the world that the Navy's deployed. Can we have? Can we piggyback on that? Can we put that down in these these things like in Texas or North Dakota or wherever these centers are going to be? Because those energy companies are already, let's say, using some of this. Oh yeah. So the, the energy companies are not blind to what's going on within DoD. It's just that they've been hesitant to invest in. Uh, smaller unmanned systems and sensors, they need the technology capabilities. They're very aggressive about it. But the problem is, other than in the University of Alaska, where they can do things that no one knows about, there's not a lot of activity going on with energy. Right. Well, you know, that goes back to when, uh, you know, what was it, Shell was up there searching for uh, walruses. I was calling that the Shell game. Yeah, oh, show out of the kindness of their heart. Oh, let's do a study on walruses and seals because we got nothing else to do. That's not really how the energy industry works. But, you know, whatever floats your boat. Now, we're at about uh, 2 minutes, 30 seconds, and we never really got into the work that you were doing over there at the AUVSI Chapter DC. And I know you guys have an, an event coming up, and I wanted to be able right. to uh, give you some time to talk about that and give the website address for more info. So go ahead. Right, okay, so we're, uh, AUVSI DC chapter is teamed with Virginia Tech, and we have a UAS conversation on March 21st at the uh, Virginia Tech Applied Research Center. Um, we, we are looking for still a couple of speakers. We have a couple of exhibitor tables we have available, and we're gonna, our conversation is on three areas, environmental monitoring, law enforcement, and global stability and humanitarian assistance. And it's going to be a unique conversation because it's not going to be about the platform. It's going to be about the wireless, the sensor packages, all the kinds of things, the innovations that allow civilian and commercial guys to value that data. I want your UAV because I want your data, and I can take that data. So this conversation is going to be something we offer. I mean, I think it's great. I don't – the best way to I, – I put it on the website. Patrick, can I send you the uh, – link to it because I don't have it right handy with me, but you can send it out to your group. 
Sure, sure. They can email me, uh, Patrick at suasnews.com, if you're interested, and I will pass that along. Okay. And um, that's coming with their aerobiology and their hybrid systems. I think some universities are taking a leadership role, which is not a bad thing. No, not at all. I, uh, you know, I mean, I, it sounds interesting. Um, I think that's another aspect that people need to look at. And I see more people coming in on the uh, business side of that, what you're talking about, the, the communications, the control, the sensors, what's available, and how, how am I going to get the data I want. So I think that right. that's good. Now, we ran a little long, and we didn't really get to talk about some other projects that you are working on. But, um, you know, interesting conversation, Joel. I appreciate you rearranging your schedule to be on. Uh, in- informative, as always. Uh, these are these are great conversations, but there's so much information and so much backstory. It's almost hard to cram it into 45 seconds. Thank you, sir, for being on. Okay. And Gene, I look forward to get back on, and, and if you all ever want to connect some dots with your radio and IPTV, there's a thing called Emerald Planet TV, and they showcase civilian and commercial unmanned systems innovation, specifically in the env- env- agricultural precision ag and environmental monitoring. We do it here at the Fairfax Public TV Channel 10, and I have an open thing on Sundays to allow put together panels for people that want to come on and broadcast their innovation. All right. Well, that's all with the time we have. We'll see you next week. Um, Everyone have a good week. All right. Have a great week, y'all. Thanks so much, Patrick. Thanks, Gene. Okay. Bye-bye.